Okie dokie. Well, when there's an error in a knitting pattern, the publisher puts out um, corrections and they call them errata. And so I've got some errata for you. I keep saying etiologies, but this word, which means an origin story, should be pronounced etiologies. The problem is I first learned the word by reading it and I had I never heard it spoken until like years later. So my mind and my tongue trip on this one. And there and here's some more that I may trip over in class. I may say Philistines, but it's pronounced Philistines. And that's because of having Bible stories read to me and in which they were all called Philistines. And I may say Augustine, like the grass, but the man's name was Augustine. Um, and I will definitely pick on this poor man as we go along. But as Catherine Hepburn used to say, you can say anything you like about me, just spell my name right. Um, so the least I can do is say his name right as I criticize some of the things he said. And I also may say papyrus when the word should be pronounced papyrus. Um, and I'm sure there are others that I don't even catch myself. At least these four I know. Um, so forgive me when I stumble. If we were together in the same room, I would encourage you to correct me. Um, but for right now, uh, be sure you've got yourself muted so we don't uh, break up over um, background noise and turn your videos off so we can maximize our throughput here. So guess what? We are done with the hard part of Genesis. Yay! It is an easy downhill stroll from here. That first part full of etiologies and that big hairy chiasm we just did, those made the story seem really choppy and weird. But now we move into a smooth narrative. The rest of Genesis reads like a novel. So we, we start uh, today in chapter 23 with the death of Sarah. She lived to be 127 years old and only ever had that one child, Isaac. Abraham still owns zero land. One child, zero land. The story of how he negotiates with the local Hittites for a burial cave for his family is a very interesting study in how negotiations like this were handled in the A&E. If you look on your map in your study guide, you'll see the Hittites see them up in the far northwest part of the whole region, up west of Haran. Well, we find them mentioned all the time as landowners in Canaan. Um, so they've clearly settled much of Canaan. And when, when the Genesis talks about Hittites and Canaanites, they, Canaanites is a broader term. Hittites is a particular term. There's lots of different national groups and ethnic, ethnic groups in Canaan. Hittites are just one of them. So the Hittites uh, are the ones Abraham goes to when he needs a place to bury Sarah. And he asks to purchase a cave near the tree of Mamre, and the Hittites do sell the cave to him, but for an exorbitant price. It's like 20 or 25 times what it's worth. But he buys it without a quibble, not wanting to owe anyone any favors at all. It kind of reminds me of when the king of Sodom offered to let him keep the spoils of war. And, and uh, Abraham said, no, no, thank you. So Abraham is, of course, sad and grieving after losing Sarah. 
And at 137, he feels as if death is very near. And he's really, really worried that Isaac will fall in love with one of the local Canaanite women. Isaac, at this point, is 37, and he ought to be married. And on top of that, he's grieving terribly over the death of his mother, Sarah. So he's ripe for picking by the local women. So Abraham, excuse me, calls his faithful steward to him. And I assume it's the same one that was named earlier, Eliezer. And he makes Eliezer swear to find Isaac a wife from among Abraham's kinfolks living up in Haran. And Eliezer says, well, what if none of your kin are willing to come all the way back here, sight unseen? And Abraham tells him, well, if that happens, Eliezer is absolved of the oath, but that, you know, he's sure the Lord will send his angel to help Eliezer find a wife for Isaac. So Eliezer puts together a major caravan, 10 camels, loads of jewels and gold, and of course the necessary fighting men to defend the caravan, and he sets out for Haran. It is a very long trip, something like 600 miles at walking speed. He finally arrives just as the women of the city are coming out with their water jars to draw from the spring. He knows, now he knows absolutely nobody in this region. So he prays, Lord God of my master Abraham, I'm going to ask these girls for a drink of water. And whichever one says, sure, here's a drink. And I'll water your camels too. Let that be the girl you have chosen to be Isaac's wife. And before he even finishes praying, a beautiful young woman comes near with her water jar on her shoulder. And Eliezer asks her for water, and she says, sure, and gives him a drink. Well, Eliezer is disappointed that she didn't offer to water the camels. Isaac would have liked this one, but the Lord must have chosen someone else. But then she says, and I'll draw water for your camels too. And she empties her jug into a nearby trough and runs for more water. Back and forth she goes with Eliezer watching and praying the whole time. Now, just a note, the modern water jug in this picture holds roughly six gallons of water. Ten camels coming off a long journey can easily drink 300 gallons of water. That's something like 2,500 pounds, well over a ton of water. So this is an example of something that is typical of ancient writing. When they want to emphasize something, they don't use exclamation points. Those weren't available to them. So instead, they use hyperbole and exaggeration. They don't see it as being inaccurate or as lying. It's just another literary device, and it's one that's used in ancient writing all the time. By describing Rebecca doing this impossible task, the writer is emphasizing the point that the Lord quite definitely had a hand in choosing Rebecca and in answering Eliezer's prayer. And after she finishes, Eliezer gives Rebecca a gold nose ring and gold bracelets and asks who her father is and if there's room in her father's house for him and his men to spend the night. And she says, sure, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, granddaughter of Nahor. And Eliezer's heart leaps. This woman is Abraham's great niece. 
And Rebecca runs ahead to her mother's household and tells her mother and her brother Laban what's happened. It sounds like her father, Bethuel, must have already passed away. Um, although he's mentioned just briefly, one word, a little later, scholars think that that brief mention is probably a later edit in the manuscript. Um, it says she goes to her mother's household and tells her mother and her brother. So we're pretty sure Bethuel has died. Anyway, it's her brother Laban, whose name would be pronounced Laban in Hebrew. Um, he's a rich man in his own right, and he takes a close look at the jewelry draped on his sister. And with a shrewd look in his eyes, he goes out to meet Eliezer. Now, Laban is a piece of work. He really is. He's the oiliest character we've come across so far. He invites Eliezer in, and over the course of the evening, Eliezer tells him all that has transpired. What clinches the deal, of course, is hearing how rich Abraham has become since he left Haran. So Laban agrees to let Rebekah go with Eliezer, and all the betrothal gifts are unloaded and given to Laban and his mother. So the next morning, Eliezer is all loaded up and ready to go. And Laban and his mother say, oh, please don't take her so quickly. Let her stay for just 10 days. Now, this is typical Laban manipulation. If you give this man an inch, he will take a mile. But Eliezer is too smart for him. And he says, oh, oh, no, I couldn't. The Lord has blessed this journey and I must not delay. I, I really must go now. So they call Rebecca and ask her if she wants to go right now or if she wants to stay home a bit. And she says she's ready to go with Eliezer now. And so it's settled. Eliezer, Rebecca, her nurse, her maids, and all the fighting men set off, heading back towards Canaan. And when they're still a ways off, Isaac sees the caravan and Rebecca sees Isaac and asks Eliezer who that man is. And it says that Isaac married Rebekah, and he was comforted in his grief from the death of his mother, Sarah. Isaac is now 40 years old. Well, everything rocks along for another 20 years. Abraham was apparently not quite as close to death as he thought. He even marries again, this time to a gal named Keturah, and he has a bunch more kids but he's careful to make sure they're no threat to Isaac. Whenever they're old enough, he gives them their inheritance and sends them off to live elsewhere. This little passage is the last we hear of Abraham. He dies at the age of 175 and is buried with Sarah by his sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Meanwhile, Rebekah, Isaac's wife, has been barren all these 20 years. Finally, when Isaac is about 60 years old, she gets pregnant, and she doesn't get a little bit pregnant. She gets horribly, miserably, hugely pregnant. The baby feels like it's kicking her to death in there, and she asks the Lord what's going on. And the Lord tells her she has twins jostling inside of her. No wonder she's so uncomfortable. And the Lord says that from these twins will come two great nations nations that will separate from each other. And weirdly, the older of the twins will serve the younger one. Well, sure enough, when the time comes, she has twin boys. The first one is a redhead, 
and he is literally covered with hair. He's so hairy, they name him Harry, which is Esau in Hebrew. And he comes to be called Red, of course, which is Edom in Hebrew. From him will come the nation of Edomites, the Reds. The second baby is hanging onto his brother's heel, quite literally pulling his leg. And it's an apt metaphor for his personality. They name him Jacob, which means deceiver. As they grow up, Esau becomes a macho, outdoorsy guy who loves to hunt. He's rough and he's crude and his daddy just loves him. Jacob, on the other hand, likes to stay in the house. He likes to cook and he is above all else a mama's boy. So one day Jacob is making some stew and Esau comes in from the open country absolutely famished. He is so hungry he can't even be bothered to talk right. He guesses to Jacob, give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob says, well, not until you sell me your claim on the firstborn's inheritance. Well, obviously, it's been bothering Jacob that Esau gets the inheritance just because he was born a split second earlier. In this culture, the firstborn always gets two things from his father. One is the birthright, which is the inheritance due to him because of being the firstborn. And the second is his father's blessing. Now, typically, each son receives a special, unique blessing from the father's deathbed, but only the eldest son gets the inheritance. So Esau says, yeah, whatever. I'll sell you my inheritance for some of that red stuff. And that's all it takes. Jacob now owns the birthright. And we find out later that both Isaac and Rebekah are told about it and abide by it. Now, it seems incredible that Esau would sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. But this shows the sort of person Esau is. He only lives for the moment. He cares about his immediate comfort, and that inheritance is not as important to him in this moment as getting food in his belly right now. The passage says he despises his birthright. Remember that, that's important. That birthright is not just the money and property. It includes the promises God made to Abraham. Abraham, um, Esau has heard these stories of these promises his whole life. He knows how God miraculously appeared to Abraham. He knows all of this, and yet he still despises the promises. Next, there's a famine in the land. Isaac and his household move back to the border of the Philistine territory. Now, notice on the map, that this southern area is also where the Edomites will settle, the people who are descendants of Esau, whose nickname is Red or Edom in Hebrew. So, uh, you should see them written in green down there, just east of the Dead Sea. Um, and so Isaac and his family move back down to the edge of Philistine country where the Red Star is. So um, we, again, you will not believe this, uh, one more time, we have a wife-sister incident with Abimelech. This time, it's with Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah is still apparently drop-dead gorgeous. And this time, Abimelech doesn't take her, but there are definitely rumblings among his men. And one day, Abimelech looks out his window and sees Isaac and Rebekah dallying with each other. Now, the word for dallying here is Itzak, laughing, Isaacing. This is where, uh, an example of where it's used 
to mean sexual play. So anyway, Abimelech realizes they're married and he fusses at Isaac and tells his men to leave Rebekah alone and he allows Isaac to settle there under his protection. Whereupon, Isaac proceeds to become very wealthy. Isaac becomes so great and powerful that eventually the land won't support them all. Fights break out over the water supply and Abimelech and Isaac agree to part ways. The whole story sounds really familiar, doesn't it? About this same time, Esau marries two local Hittite women. These Hittite women Esau marries do not get along with his mother, Rebekah. She absolutely hates her daughters-in-law, and they make her life miserable. But Rebekah is no peach herself. Remember, this is Laban's sister we're talking about. She dislikes Esau and his wives, but she adores Jacob. One day, Rebekah overhears Isaac telling Esau to go hunt some wild game and prepare his fa favorite meal so he can give Esau his blessing before he dies. Well, Rebekah knows that e Isaac is now blind in his old age, and she quickly hatches a plan. She calls Jacob to her and tells him to get a couple of choice young goats for her to prepare just as his father likes them. And then she tells him to take the meal into his father and pretend to be Esau so poor blind Isaac will bless Jacob instead. I mean, what a sneaky thing to do, right? Well, Jacob's totally up for this but he's worried his father will know he's not Esau because he's not hairy. Well, Rebecca realizes he's right and that Esau is smellier than Jacob too. So she has Jacob dress up in some of Esau's clothes and bind some animal fur on his arms and his neck so he'll feel and smell like Esau. Unbelievable. So Jacob, all dressed up like this, takes the stew into Isaac. And Isaac says, wow, how'd you get back so fast, Esau? And Jacob says, God gave me success. Well, you'd think God would strike him with lightning at that point. But no, that's not what happens. Well, Isaac thinks, you know, this sounds like Jacob, not Esau. So he says, come closer so I can be sure you are Esau. I guess Isaac knows what a slippery character Jacob is. Jacob's tricksy, as they say. And when Jacob comes close, Isaac feels all the fur and he thinks, well, he feels like Esau, but I'm still not sure. So he says, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob says, I am. Like what a bald-faced liar, right? So Isaac thinks up another test. He figures Jacob might have put fur on his arms, but Esau's neck is hairy too. And I, by this, I think he probably means his whole neck area, like his beard and everything. And he's smellier than Jacob. So he says, come near to me, my son. And when Jacob draws near, Isaac grabs him in a hug and kisses him. Well, sure enough, there's hair on his neck and he smells like Esau. And oh, well, must be Esau. And so Isaac blesses Jacob with the blessing he intended for Esau. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. 
May nations bow down and serve you. Be master over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. And as soon as he gets that blessing, Jacob skedaddles back to his mama. And at that very moment, Esau comes into the tent with the meal he prepared for his father. And he says, here, father, sit up and eat this meal I've made. And Isaac says, who are you? I'm your firstborn son, Esau, he answers. And Isaac starts shaking all over. He says, who came in with that food just before you? I just now gave your blessing to him. No, screams Esau. And Isaac says, your brother came in and took your blessing. I made him master over you. And Esau cries, he's not named the deceiver for nothing. He's already taken my birthright and now he's taken my blessing too. Have you only one blessing to give, Father? Please bless me too. And he begins to weep. And Isaac, knowing he cannot undo the blessing given to Jacob, does his best. May your dwelling be the richness of the earth and the dew of heaven. You will live by the sword and serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will cast off his yoke. Now, many of your translations will change that first bit. So it says his dwelling will be away from the richness of the earth, etc. But the Hebrew can be read either way. And I agree with the scholars who see this as a positive blessing. It makes sense that both Jacob and Esau can be blessed with the richness of the earth and the dew of heaven. And Isaac puts that last part in so that Esau has some way of wriggling out from under Jacob's dominion. So at this point, Esau is quite literally planning to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac dies. So Rebekah immediately sends Jacob off to live with her brother Laban in Haran until Esau has time to cool off. As an excuse, she tells Isaac it's because her life won't be worth living if Jacob marries a local Hittite woman like Esau did. So Isaac calls Jacob in and blesses him before he departs and tells him to be sure whatever he does, be sure and don't marry a Canaanite woman. Um, and when Esau hears of this, he realizes exactly how upset his parents are over his Hittite wives, which just goes to show how utterly unaware he's been so far of anyone except himself. And, and he goes out and marries one of Ishmael's daughters to try to appease his parents. So we're drawing near to the end of the story, this part of it anyway. And the narrative now shifts to follow Jacob on his adventures. In this last scene, we catch up with him as he flees to Haran. When he stops for the night, he puts a large stone under his head and lays down to sleep. And as he sleeps, he has a dream. He dreams he sees a ladder with one end in heaven and the other on earth. And he sees angels going up and down the ladder. And God is standing at the top of the ladder. 
And God says to him, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. Notice how God names himself. Notice that God has taken Abraham and Isaac's name into his own, but not Jacob's, not yet. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, spreading north, south, east, and west. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back here. I will not leave you until I have done everything I promised. And when Jacob wakes up, he's afraid because he's obviously been sleeping on holy ground. He takes the large stone he's been sleeping on and sets it up as a pillar and pours oil on it and calls that place Bethel, literally Beit, which means house, and El, which means God, Beit El, house of God. Notice that the author of Genesis has been calling this place Bethel all, all along, but here we learn at least one of the etiologies for its name. And Jacob, being Jacob, makes a deal with God. He says, if you will watch over me and bring me back here safely, then you will be my God too. And this pillar will indeed be God's house, Bethel. And I will give you a tenth of everything you give me. Such a deal. 90% for Jacob, 10% for God. Typical Jacob deal. But notice, this is the second time giving a tenth back to God has been mentioned. The first time, if you remember, was when Abram gave the priest Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils after he rescued Lot. I mention this just as food for thought, and so you'll remember it later. We'll run across this tenth again. And so we come to the end of this part of the narrative. There's lots to think about here. Let's go into our breakout sessions and talk about what's happening. All righty, I think everybody's back now. Okay, so if you were God and you were picking um, a chosen family to carry your legacy to the whole rest of the world forever and always, is this the family you'd pick? <laughs> Depends on who the other families were. <laughs> oh my goodness. So talk to me some about what, what y'all talked about in those first five questions, the first half of the discussion. What were your observations? How duplicitous, deceitful, short-sighted, selfish <laughs> these folks were. Yeah. Yeah, what kind of a mom was Rebecca? Not good. Not fair. I tend to disagree with that. Good. She was looking out. I tended to find her as being extremely obedient, you know, and, and to the point maybe that it was wrong, but... In order, I mean, if she was going to hear a message from God, let's say, um, you know, her who's going to, which of her sons is going to be the one that's going to be leading the nation, wouldn't she be taking it upon herself as a mom to make sure that God's promise are, got fulfilled? I, 
I don't see her as a bad person. I just see her as someone who's trying to work the best she can with the resources that she had at her disposal, coming from a really dysfunctional family and, mm-hmm. and being um, oh, as obedient and, and trying to work with the confines in her society. That's, that's valid. What, what do y'all think? Yeah, yeah we're, it we're, is. Yeah, we it were is. talking about that in our small group that um, she, you know, she had this promise. And it goes back to the same theme again of people receiving a promise from God and then feeling like they had to be the ones to fulfill the promise. You know, mm-hmm. Abraham and Sarah did it. Um, and then we see it with Rebecca uh, and and with Jacob. Um, it's like, okay, so God said this is going to happen and I'm not seeing that this is going to happen. So I've got to step in and do God's job. Yeah. Very. Or God told me I had to do this, you know, <laughs> God gave me this message. So that's obviously my job. <laughs> right. Well, that's favorite. what we think as moms, right? <laughs> but she played favorites and having a mom who played favorites, that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> but also, you know, she she was uh, uh, she was very capable of taking advantage of any situation because I don't know. I looked at it like there at the beginning. Even I mean, yes, she did. She was kind and compassionate, and she went and got the water for for um, the servant and for his camels. But then when she was given the opportunity to, well, you want to stay home for just a, you know, for a few more days or something like that. And she's like, uh, uh-uh, I'm going because she sees this guy with all this stuff. And obviously they're very wealthy. And she's like, you know, I'm going because I'm not going to lose this chance. So, and then when she, yeah, you know, but, but she could have stayed with her family and taken advantage of the situation and perhaps eked out more money maybe yeah but if she goes along to marry the guy she gets everything <laughs> so, yes yeah i think it was shrewd but luli said she was impulsive and hmm? um that that's where esau got it from and so we yeah. we kind of looked at mm-hmm. what each of her sons got from her she was shrewd and deceitful and smart and Jacob got that intelligence and that shrewdness from her, and Esau got the impulsiveness from her. Mm-hmm. And maybe she wanted to get away from Laban. Well, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Laban is the functionalist we find him out to be later. Mm-hmm. You know, Rebecca knows this is a good place to get out of. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> get away from my brother. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. <laughs> Absolutely. I, did Something that. I, I married that. to get away from my family. I had a very dysfunctional family and I married to get away from my family. So I get her. I do get her. <laughs> yes. Yes. Something I noticed in the beginning of that story, which I thought was a little bit unusual, given the circumstances, how women were uh, considered back then, is that Rebecca was actually given a choice as to whether or not to go right away or to go ahead you know they consulted with her uh which seemed kind of strange to me mm-hmm. probably thought she'd agree with them <laughs> that's probably true yeah good point wow absolutely that's funny that's a, that's a good point mm-hmm. wow 
So she, I mean, she's. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Woody. Well, as I said to my small group, one of the, one of the reasons this story is uh, disturbing or at least confusing to me is it's the message that it seems to be giving is, okay, if, and going back to all those earlier Genesis passages that you referred to, God's goal is to uh, create this nation with more descendants than the stars in the sky and all that. So that's God's goal. And um, he's got, you know, Rebecca and, and, and Jacob kind of trying to, to achieve that goal. But the message it seems to be giving is the end justifies the means. If you, you know, you can, it's okay to, to be deceitful and lying as long as it's going to end up accomplishing whatever your goal is. And that was disturbing to me. Well, and I think that's a, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was going to say, and I kind of thought from the other side of that, of that um, lens was that God blessed them regardless um, that, that I took it as a hopeful thing for me mm-hmm. that, that God, I'm sure knew how they were going to act, but still was true to the promises that were made and didn't curse them. Mm-hmm. That's that, true. But I do think that, that um, Woody's, I think both messages are important. You know, I, definitely want us to get the message loud and clear of how truly warped all of these characters are. It kind of shows that no matter how dysfunctional your family is, God's still there. It doesn't matter how screwed up your family is. Yes, that's true. I think that Woody's point is really important Um, because that is a basic takeaway we need to have that people tend to think the end justifies the means. And we see that now in our society and in our nation and in our nation's leaders all the time. But God, that is never God's way. The end never justifies the means for God. It's all about how we do relationship from God's point of view. And that is a great segue into the second half of the questions, which were all about, you know, rather than looking at it from a human perspective, let's look at it from God's perspective. What did you all see in the passages um, was God's end game here? What, what, what is God's purpose in all of these promises? Gail? goal was to be to to bless the nations of the world that's always the last phrase in god's blessings is that you will be fruitful you will be multiplied you will get all this land so that you can bless the through you the nations of the world will be blessed and it seemed like abram and uh isaac took it as i will be blessed (laughs) and they forget about that the goal that god's goal is to bless the nations of the world Yes, he'll bless them on the way, but the major point of God's goal is to bless the nations of the world. And so they, they, they forgot that. Yeah. Yes. I heard Shirley, were you going to say something? 
well, basically the same thing. And then adding to it that, um, that, that was when, you know, Woody said God's goal was to make them a great nation. Well, that's what Isaac thought God's goal was. And that's, you know, how it got passed down to Jacob, that that's what God's goal was. But that's not really what God's goal was. The actual goal was through Abraham's lineage to bless the entire world. And that's, if you miss that point, it that's why he blessed Jacob. Not because Jacob was a good person. He blessed Jacob because he had made a promise to bless the world through Abraham's lineage. And God is faithful and is going to follow through on that promise in spite of us. And we need to, we need to be very cognizant. I want you to like highlight this wherever you're putting the really important things to remember, you know, that that's two of them that have come across in this particular three in this particular lesson. One is God's working with a bunch of warped characters. Two, the end never justifies the means. It's about the means. And three, God's goal from the beginning and all the way through is to bless us, all of us. And we... Now, how do we get that, that, how do you, in this story, can you, is there a way you can explain that we, how we can see that the end isn't justifying the means? Uh, no. It does clearly say it's, 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 it's like, Jacob pays a price. He gets humbled. He pays a price, you know, and it, it's, uh, yeah, he pays a price with Laban. He pays a price when he comes back with Esau. Yeah. Uh, he pays a price for this. We just haven't got there yet. Right. And, but I want you to, I want you to, to and I, I say that because I'm, I'm wanting you to notice how God responds every time. You know, that people take, see, we think of it as if, if God um, gives us a promise and we take it in our hands and we totally mess it up, God's going to come and squash us like a bug, you know, and that is not typically how God responds. You know, God's response is, okay, you have totally messed this up. I'm going to fix it. We're going to go back on the path. And we're going to keep working on how you relate to each other. And we're going to hear God say that over and over and over. How, how are you relating to each other and teaching his people how he wants them to relate to each other. And we're going to, I just want you to be watching for that thread and making sure that you're viewing the scripture through that lens as we go through. So last question, I want to, I want to hit on that last question. Assuming you didn't already know the answer like Liz, that's not fair. Um, but, but if you were a parent, um, and you had Jacob to work with, what kind of situation would you want him to get into to become who he needs to be? But Liz had a really good answer to that question. Okay. He finds out what it feels like to get cheated. He feel, finds out what it feels like to have somebody be manipulative and um, wily and sneaky. And he gets to feel like, feel the kind of rage that he deserves when he goes, you know, when Laban chases him and when Esau meets him, he's, he is terrified because he knows how much he's hurt. 
And so he's, he's humbled by these situations that with, um, when he goes to Laban later and when he goes, comes back to Esau, he is greatly humbled from his uh, arrogance and all that. Exactly. And, and so I ask you, and we're going to do all that next week. Um, so if you don't know that story yet, don't worry about it. I'm going to tell you that story next week. But, um, but the, the interesting thing here is um, that when you're going through something like what Jacob is about to go through, um, it can feel like punishment. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I am wanting you to see from God's perspective at this point in the story, before anything else happens, why this might not be punishment. You know, people very often read the scripture and they see God doing things. And rather than seeing it as in, in large degree, um, dealing with kids how we would deal with kids, which is letting the natural consequences take their course, you know, even if they're painful. People see that as God punishing them because the way the story is written in the Bible, the, it's written in hindsight. And so from the, by the people to whom this happened. And so if the, the child, um, in this case, Jacob, goes through the natural consequences of his actions, and if the situation has been designed to rub off the rough spots, you know, and actually change him into, into somebody else, somebody better, so to get the stuff off and let the real person come through, he, if he were writing the story, he might write it as if he went through a period of punishment. Mm-hmm. Because that's what that rock tumbling feels like, you know, um, that, that God did all these things to me. And it uh, kind of reminds me of a, of, a, of a teenager. You're ruining my life. What are you doing to me? You know, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and there's so- a big difference between discipline and punishment, though. I don't believe God punishes us and I don't believe we should punish our children. Discipline them. Yes. Discipline is training and discipline is learning lessons. Whereas punishment is just, I'm angry with you. So I'm going to be mean to you. Right. I'm going to hit you. God doesn't just hit us. You know, there's a, there's God may, you know, step back and let natural consequences take, take their course, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've often been telling God is a love and logic parent. I'm sorry, you broke up, Marlene. What did you say? Oh, I said, um, I've often said that God is a love and logic like kind that. of parent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you make that choice. Okay, let's see what the consequences are going to be and let's let those mm-hmm. play out. But within mm-hmm. the confines of I'm not going to let you die or get seriously hurt. But you need to learn that this choice you made is going to have those consequences. And that seems to be how God works throughout all these stories. <laughs> Right. Well, we're um, yeah. oh. we're to the end of our our allotted time today, and you know, feel Aww. free feel free to stay on. We can talk some more, but I do want to you know let folks know that we're done with the class, and you're you know please feel free to to drop off and um and it's it's been great. We'll have another great story next time. Uh, we're done with the really hard technical parts of Genesis, so 
It's just the stories from here on out. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Gail. Bye. We have some really smart people in this Bible study, by the way. We have, we have people with a lot of really good insight. And whether they're Bible scholars or not doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just some really intelligent human beings with some really good insight. Yeah, I'm, I've really been enjoying hearing all the different perspectives because stuff that I come to these passages with is different than stuff that somebody else comes to them with. And, and, and Gail, you know, you sort of give us these guidelines with the questions, but we also can expand within our small group on a particular thing that popped out to us that we can look at and get multiple perspectives. Yes. Yes, and I I like that it's a safe place to express our mm -hmm. our, our thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we may have. I mean, I I like to know what other people's thoughts are because it makes me grow. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, and I appreciate though that even if my thoughts are different from yours, you will, you know, from anybody's that they will, you know, that they can they will accept that as well and um, maybe learn from it too. So and so it's a safe place. I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 So, well, I'm going back to what Marlene said about when you're talking with a child, sit down and think with them. Uh, if you make this choice, what will be the natural consequence? And I will let you experience those natural consequences unless it harms you or kills you. But um, I mean, my kids are 32. And I'm thinking this could be a really useful conversation with my 32 year old kids because they don't look at what the natural consequences of what their choices now, how they're going to affect them in 10, 20, 30 years. How are you now? <clears throat> yeah, just, um, anyway, I just found that I'm, I'm like writing that all down. <laughs> I, wrote down I wrote down the logic and the yeah. love and logic parenting. I like that. I did too, because I'd, yeah. I'd heard it, I've followed it before and it was like, yeah, God is that. <laughs> yeah. So now we're yeah. in a parenting class. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God's the ultimate parent. We can learn from him, yeah? yeah. Well, you know, this was an interesting thing that kind of went back to, to the story today that we were talking about in our group, that um, when you look at Rebecca and what she was doing with Esau, um, or with, well, well, both of the boys, but, you know, in coaching Jacob, that probably, because in the story, it makes the point that Esau's wives were making her life a misery. Uh, part of her motivation might have been, in addition to the fact that she had gotten this promise from God that the older son was going to serve the younger son, was the idea that she knew Abraham was a lot older or that, that Isaac was a lot older than her and was going to die first. And the idea of having to move in to live with Esau and those two daughters-in-law who would make her life a daily living hell was intolerable to her, but to maybe arrange things so that Jacob would be the one who would inherit that would get her out of that family dynamic and not have oh. to face her yeah. final days under the control of these two women that she absolutely hated and who hated her. Wow. That's good. 
Yeah, yeah, I gotta go. Yeah. Bye, y'all. Yeah. I gotta go too. We'll see y'all. Yep, I do too. Bye. 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 Bye.